Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. This is episode two of my chat with Stefan Sagmeister. Stefan has designed for clients as diverse as the Rolling Stones and the Guggenheim Museum. He's a two-time Grammys winner and also earned practically every important international design award there is to earn. Stefan's work is steeped in graphics, but he's also directed a film, created furniture, made products, designed a watch and ventured into clothing. His books sell in the hundreds of thousands and his exhibitions have been mounted in dozens of museums around the world. His exhibit, The Happy Show, attracted way over a million visitors worldwide and became the most visited graphics show in history. A native of Austria, he received his MFA from the University of Applied Arts in Vienna and as a Fulbright Scholar, a master's degree from the Pratt Institute in New York. Join me for a fantastic chat with Stefan. This is the first conversation where somebody has mentioned an art factory in effect and a production line of product in the same breath. And what's interesting is that, you know, Jeff Coon, the production process of Jeff Coons, although it's a different product, is not dissimilar to that of Hermes. Very much so. I mean, Jeff Coons has, I'm not sure if that's still the case, but definitely when we dealt with a uh, work of his, he had about 200 people working there and doing very high-end couture creations that, that uh, working with the absolute top line of craftspeople, very, very much like a fashion house, or in, the, in this case of Hermes, would work with the very, very top line of craftspeople to create the product for the very few. And I would think that if you would look at the person who bought H or who is able to buy a Jeff Kuhn sculpture, I would think that that household might also have a number of Hermes bags. So the customer could easily be the same. In many cases, I would assume would be the same. Of course, it's we are talking at a very different price range because there are so many wealthy people around there. I would assume that at least a couple of the a couple of the people who are able to buy a Jeff Kuhn sculpture also buy that to separate themselves from the people who are merely, merely single or double billionaires as who couldn't really spend a hundred or two hundred million dollars on a piece of art, while the person who is the 10, 20, 30 times billionaire can. And considering they are already living in the same apartment and have the same house in the Hamptons and have the same helicopter and so on, uh, very high-end contemporary art is still one of those things that is allowing for some differentiation between the extremely, extremely, extremely rich and merely the extremely rich. So here's a question. (laughs) you recognize the Hermes logo because I know mm-hmm. you you sure. big into topography. What does the, the Jeff Koons logo look like? Well, I think that in, in art, it used to be that a signature could become iconic. A lot of people would know how a Picasso signature looks like, but that sort of became, that went out of style. Like signing things prominently was a very, very big deal. I don't know, maybe 
all the way into the first part of the 20th century, I would think. I think that it kind of went out. I mean, Warhol already made fun of it, you know, had his mom sign and so on. It kind of went, it, it wasn't really fashionable for artists to have a recognizable signature or a logo in that case, which was interesting in Warhol's case because he so much, you know, loved business and loved logos and had all these fantastic sayings about, you know, uh, extreme commerce and him, he, you know, thought that he was he was making business as an art form and all, you know, all of those notions. But so I would say that in... So to, to answer your question, I don't think that in Jeff Kuhn's case, the logo is, you know, a typographic expression of his name. The logo in Jeff Kuhn's case is probably the balloon dog itself that very, very much became. It's a, it's a pity for him because I, because it's a balloon dog. I don't think he could copyright it. And there's a plentiful other, other, uh, companies who make balloon dog like situations. And of course, I think Jeff would have a difficult time, you know, copywriting things, considering that he had a good number of copyright troubles himself where he took, you know, pieces of photography or other things. And I think, I think was sued quite a lot. And I think if I remember correctly, was sued sometimes successfully. You know, the Hermes bag is one of the few things that goes to auction and could sell for 20, 30, 40, a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, there's some auction houses who have, who have their own departments for ladies handbags. Yeah. I mean, I know that the big American auction house uh, has and I'm not sure if Christie's has their own handbag auction, but there are definitely there are people at auction houses who are experts for handbags in the same way that you would have an expert for contemporary art from the 60s. Yeah, and that's quite an unusual. I mean, it's a, not unusual. It's a slightly odd premise mm -hmm. that you could buy a secondhand handbag, um, but typically it's going to be an Hermes, more than yeah. any of the others, Very for $100,000. Yeah. In the same context, you could buy a piece of yeah. Jeff Koons for yeah. $50 million. Yeah. And ultimately, both of them work with scarcity, uh, meaning if Jeff would create uh, 100,000 of his large balloon dogs, that price would not be achievable, of course. And in both directions, the scarcity is the the creators of the of of the of the pieces know the value of scarcity and work with it. Mm. But then I suppose the question is with Jeff Koons, it's much more regulated mm -hmm. um, in terms of editions. Yes. With an Amazon handbag, it's not regulated yeah. in the same way because they are constantly producing Birkin and Kelly handbags. Yes, but in a way. Uh, I think they are comparable because, you know, let's say the, the $100,000 bag that you mentioned would have to be some sort of very specific bag in a specific color combination with very rare leathers or very, very particularly metal golden hardware would have to be very special or very rare combinations, maybe, maybe made 
for a particular client who ordered it that way, particularly fantastic client, and so forth and so on. So the scarcity comes out of there. I think with that, it's the brand. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Totally. And uh, uh, it's, you know, I have nothing against that, meaning like there is, it's ultimately, I think it's a fair exchange. Uh, it's in, you know, in some ways, I'm even now part of the luxury producing world myself, not on purpose, but I found that when we, when we create fashion and we want to do it in New York, that is partly because I don't want to create things in, in a third world country where I don't know how they are created. And it's partially because we are very small and we can oversee what we can do, but also it's clear that the people that work for us are paid properly. But that also means that the, that the piece that you buy from us is actually quite expensive and would Meaning, I really don't see it as luxury, but many, many, many people would. I meaning, like, one of our shirts, I think, costs two hundred and eighty dollars. Now, probably most people would think that a two hundred and eighty dollar shirt is a luxury shirt, and this was not done on purpose. I meaning, I would much rather, I'd much rather sell it for fifty bucks if I could make it happen. But I'm just not. I think. I don't think that you can produce a shirt in this country and sell it for 50 bucks. I don't think it's possible. When you think about $280 is a lot of money. However, in the scheme of luxury brands, that's the price. It's quarter the price of a T-shirt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. No, and, you know, and we have a couple of stores, specifically my... Um, the store that my sister-in-law runs, which is a uh, very good store that sells a lot of luxury in my hometown in Bregenz. And, you know, she had she combined our shirt with some skirt from Yves Saint Laurent. And suddenly, our shirt looked like an unbelievable bargain. And, you know, in that context, it was fantastic. Uh, I, though, as a designer, I have to say... And I think with this particular message, I'm just more interested in a larger audience than in a smaller one. So, meaning even, you know, it's sort of strange because I somehow got pressed into this luxury world without my desire to be in it. Like I'm, that this glass that I'm, that I'm drinking water out of is a gorgeous glass produced hand-painted glass by the very old and uh, full of history company Loebmeyer in Vienna, one of my favorite companies, I meaning they have the most gorgeous store right there on Kantnerstrasse, they do everything by hand. But because of that, it's an, ex it's an incredibly expensive glass. I mean, I wouldn't want to break it at all. Uh, and it's it literally is only available for a luxury client, ultimately. Um, actually, I just came from then and we now talked through on how we could possibly make a cheaper product. I basically said, so what's the cheapest handmade things 
you you can do because we're gonna stick within the handmade because that's all Lobmeyer does. They're not they're not creating anything really with machines. So and he showed me, and we are actually now I'm in the process, I've been I'll do it in the next weeks, create a new set of glasses that will be still expensive, but at least somewhat cheaper. I definitely know that many of my people, many of the people that follow me on Instagram will still think that a $55 glass is ridiculous, as in too expensive. Yeah, no, absolutely right. So, I mean, that's interesting because in the world of communication, the world you inhabit, you know, you're talking about perception now, you know, sure. some people perceive $50 to be a lot for a glass. I have some Murano glasses, which are 150 pounds. You know, it's 200, sure. you know, it's a, sure. that's, you know, and you're kind of scared to use them. But what's the point of having a glass if you can't use it? Totally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's partly the narrative, but then it's also just partly the situation of people. I mean, obviously, if you, uh, you know, if your situation is so that you are, that you can spend $5 a day, you know, $50 for a, uh, for a glass seems totally ridiculous. If you're in a situation that you spend $500 a day, $50 for a glass is fine. Mm. But then, you know, with, um, with luxury and luxury brands, it's less, I mean, you're talking about the Loebmeyer glasses, which are hand-painted and, the, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's a, an amazing sure. product. When you talk about luxury or when one talks about luxury brands, I often question whether it's more about the brand than about the product. I think you have both, you know, it's, uh, you know, and I see it, meaning, you know, I see it uh, completely like there is, uh, I don't know, there is uh, sometimes if you look at fashion, the stuff is is so beautifully, so delicately, so gorgeously made by people who are at the absolute top of their game that you could see why this would cost the uh, uh, the amount that it does because it's a single piece and it's or you know it's just absolutely gorgeously made. But then there is a lot of other stuff that is where it's an incredibly high price in order and that is explained by a large logo that you would want to show off and that. Uh, you know, I don't know, explains that high price, where the quality is the same or where is undistinguishable from something that costs a fraction. Yeah. But then do you think um, luxury products are luxury because of the price or do you think it's because of the quality of the product or the craftsmanship? Well, I think it's both. Right. I meaning I could it's both and it and I think you have the various brands. Yeah, I think there's brands who offer both. Yeah, some of it is bullshit and some of it is uh is real. And there are brands who basically only do one or the other. I meaning I know that in our case it's the way the reason our shirts are $280 is a mix of my it's a mix of my perfectionism that I would want to work with the best fabrics and the best finishing possible and the fact that we produce in the United States and, and specifically in New York. 
which again has something to do with the fact that it's a small company where even if I wanted to produce in Bangladesh, I think I couldn't. It's not even a question because but I wouldn't reach, I wouldn't be able to, to have the minimums of the factories that produce in Bangladesh. So it's not like I wouldn't want to produce in Bangladesh, but it's also not even an option because they probably would want me to make a thousand shirts or five thousand shirts and I don't know how to sell. I don't have the, the infrastructure to sell a thousand or five thousand shirts. Why did you get into fashion just as a matter of interest? I think it was basically something that uh, seemed very close to the body and where I could create this message of things are better now than they used to be in many cases, uh, being worn quite close to the skin in the same way that, I don't know, like I drink a lot of espressos, so I wanted to make espresso cups with that message. Uh, and I, in my, as I got older, got more interested in fashion. But again, like, you know, when you say, what made you be, go into fashion? I don't feel I'm in fashion. I'm a graphic designer who dabbles, like who, who made now a couple of pieces of clothing. Like, you know, yeah. Okay. So it wasn't a, a, so you didn't make a concerted effort to stop making clothing? No, no. It was basically, it was like, oh, that would be interesting. Let's see if that's possible. And uh, I knew uh, I uh, years ago had dated a woman who, uh, knows a lot about fashion and knows a lot about fashion production. And so I knew that uh, she could probably be, I could talk her into doing the production of it uh, because, of course, there is all sorts of things that you need to know, fitting and all of those things, which I wouldn't have the, the knowledge nor the patience to really figure this all out. So uh, it was possible. And... Uh, uh, Carolina, the woman that uh, that I'm together with, was offered to say, yeah, and I can do the website and I'll do your social media. So the stuff sort of like fell into place. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real family kind of endeavor. And, you know, and it's also, it's sort of like something to try out if people like it and if it, if it becomes relatively quickly sustainable from a business point of view, which is, again, very, very difficult to do, uh, uh, specifically if you do it sort of on the side, like I'm doing it, uh, then fantastic, then we'll keep on doing it. And if it doesn't, then we won't keep on doing it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that it's so, it's not something that has to work, not at all. I was just interested in about your philosophical approach to your work because it's very much focused around happiness, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that ultimately I think that the easiest way I could put sort of like the essence of the work, what we try is that we try to do, to make things that help people and delight people which ultimately means that uh, it's designed, so it needs to have a function. 
that's the helping part. So I don't know, in the way that the shirt that we're making is hopefully warming somebody and it's, you know, it feels good and it's comfortable to wear. And then, but it, it can't just have that. I have zero interest in making a purely functional shirt, meaning like somebody that just works as a shirt. It has to do something else. And in this case, of course, it's the, the graphics we put on that shirt or have sewn into that shirt that hopefully there is some sort of element of delight in there, both for the wearer, but also maybe of somebody because it's unusually looking, somebody who is asking. And I know that because when I wear our shirts, people very, very often ask, oh, that's a nice shirt. Uh, what's that? What is it? And then, of course, it allows me to say, oh, look, this graphic stands for, you know, how, whatever, you know, how women used to be, uh, used to die in the same rate from bearing a child, then they now die from breast cancer. It's, that's how, and that's really progressed, that it used to be as dangerous to have a child than it is now to have breast cancer. So in it, so, uh, that's the second part. And sometimes we achieve that and sometimes we don't. But ultimately, I think that if I look back at the pieces that we've designed in the past decades, the pieces that allow that where I feel that they did both, as in that piece helped somebody and it delighted somebody that I got from the feedback, I feel it was worth my while to do them. That that I'm, I, those pieces I feel I'm glad we did them. And the pieces that didn't, I feel were kind of like a waste of my time. I could have stayed in bed and watched Netflix. <laughs> yeah, okay. There wasn't Netflix in those days, though. No, no, there I'm wasn't joking. Netflix, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you still take a year out? I do. Every seven years, I take a year off. Yes. Yeah. And how does I mean? How does that? I'm just interested. This mm -hmm. is just a personal thing. I'm interested in how does that feel to just block yourself off and not work for a year? Right, it feels amazing. Meaning that, uh, and I remember the the first time when I was first unbelievably scared of all the negative consequences such a year could have, as in being forgotten, looking unprofessional, and all of those things. Uh, when I was able to overcome all of those fears and mm, I remember on day one of the first sabbatical, I was still doing this in New York and I just, and I had a year of nothingness in front of me. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, I really made this happen. I cannot believe it. This is absolutely fantastic uh, because it's just a year is very different from four weeks or two months or anything. It's just this a year, at least for my mind and my brain, it just feels almost endless. Like I cannot even see the end of that year. And it's just so much time and so much freedom in front of me to fill in any way that I want. And then, of course, in the first sabbatical, because I didn't really know how to do these things, I promptly, I think, wasted the first two or three weeks because I didn't quite know 
what the rules or what the limitations should be. And I had purposefully made no plan because I'm a big planner and I want to have the sabbaticals very different from how I normally behave. And that turned out didn't really work well for me. Like without the plan, I was basically doing busy work as in like, you know, stuff that the intern used to do. I now, uh, busied up my day and that was very frustrating. Uh, but then I found a couple of limitations on what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And then, uh, put those into place. And those were the right limitations ever since. And I've done three full year sabbatical since, and I have another one coming up in two years. Wow. So that's quite amazing. And that's a luxury, isn't it? That is a total luxury. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And it's, uh, I would say, it might be the single best design decision I've ever, the most consequential and influential design decision, uh, mostly because if I look back at the work that I mentioned before, the stuff that would be at the center of, oh, this delighted somebody and it helped somebody, it was the vast majority of these larger jobs came out of thinking that was made in the sabbaticals. Some of them very directly, like the happy film or the exhibition about beauty, where this was really all done, like came directly out of the sabbaticals. But even earlier projects that I might not have done in the sabbatical, but the impetus for the strategy and the direction came from the sabbatical. So it's, I would say that if I wouldn't have done the sabbaticals, the projects that are closest to my heart would not exist. And probably even more important, I feel that the sabbaticals were the best strategy to keep my, to keep looking at my job as a calling rather than as a career or as a job or as just a regular job. And that is the fact that I've been doing it for such a long time. I mean, I'm 59 years old now and I probably did the first printed published pieces when I was 14 or 15. So that's a long time to have been a designer. And I still... Yeah, I can say, I mean, today in the morning, uh, I did some exercise, but out right after that, at 7 a.m., I sat at the table and happily was working on a piece of design, in this case, a mural for uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, that I'm excited about. It's not that... It's still difficult, meaning it's difficult to do a good moral. It's, that's the pity with anything that's good is that it's difficult. Like it would be so much more wonderful. It would be easy to do. <laughs> but then everybody would do it. It's true. Then we would, then of course our world would be absolutely gorgeous and there would be no ugliness anywhere to be seen, which wouldn't be a bad thing either. But uh, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, and it's in, because it's difficult. I can't, you know, I'm not sitting at the table, you know, prolocking happily, you know, singing to myself. Uh, but I'm 
I can say that I'm excited in doing it. Like I, I, I like it, and I, uh, I would be missing it incredibly if I couldn't. Like so, I'm also, and you know, I'm lucky that there are people like the commissioners in Bentonville that come to me and say, "I would we need, we have this gigantic wall, and we need a mural here." And we want you to do it. So um, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. And and that's amazing. I mean, you know, I've been smiling all the way through um, this conversation just because talking to you is so refreshing because you're so positive. It's, yeah, see, it's it's odd. Uh, I haven't, I have this cousin who is significantly older than me. Uh, She is now in her 80s. And out of the blue, I haven't seen her in a decade easily. Out of the blue, she sent me a picture yesterday of me as a probably six-year-old boy congratulating her to her marriage in front of the church. And I think you can see this sort of you wouldn't recognize me. I mean, I look totally different as a six-year-old, but I think you can see that sort of excitement in my face. And I'm meaning like, I don't know, a regular six-year-old boy probably doesn't get a kick out of congratulating somebody to their marriage. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, uh, I clearly, it seems that I was excited about it. So it seems to me that some of the things that um that is are still clearly somewhat part of my personality I must have been born with. I just wanted to ask you about technology and how sure. that impacts on your creative process and your work. Well, I mean I'm a big fan of technology and design, mostly because it seems to be the juiciest direction to be able to create newish things. You know, I mean, I think that technology historically was always the driver of creativity. Always. You know, meaning that is, I don't know, started with typography that was completely depending on the tools, on the technology it was created with, being with the Phoenicians or the Egyptians or the Romans. I mean, that those tools were responsible very much for the form it to take on. And that went onwards with Gutenberg and printing and went onwards with digital technology. And when people say, well, it's not really to do any, it's not really possible to do anything new anymore. Well, it kind of is uh, because, uh, you know, uh, Carolina, my, my partner works for SuperSense and she, you know, creates things in 3D in virtual reality for uh, a workout app that I'm using every day, also today in the morning. And yes, there are obviously ingredients in there that we are familiar with, and a lot of it is again standing on the shoulders of giants, but that sort of thing that you could work out with glasses on in a extremely real-looking environment where you stand on Machu Picchu and are hitting balls, virtual spheres with two two bats, 
wasn't really, not only was that not doable 10 years ago, but the interesting thing is it wasn't even thinkable. Like nobody would have thought to think in that direction because you kind of couldn't because the technology wasn't available. So it's, I find that absolutely fascinating. Or even many of the pieces that we created in the studio, like there is a, a piece, a digital piece that is ultimately a typographic spider web. But if you look at it uh, uh, as a viewer, you're basically, you're, the spider web reacts to your movement. And if you move very quickly, you will rip the spider web apart and it will rebuild. Now we did that, I don't know, maybe, maybe 15 years ago when that sort of technology was extremely new. Uh, it was exhibited at the Art Institute of Chicago and I think at MoMA in San Francisco for a very long time. Uh, it's, I think that nobody in the 1950s could have even, in design, could have even thought about a, a thing like this. You know, if they did, maybe, I don't, well, if they did, I'm not aware of it, uh, that somebody would have made a sketch or would have had that thought. And it strangely might have even remained a piece of its time because oddly, even though we were creating this with technologists who were at the absolute top of their game 15 years ago, because of the change of computer technology, we now cannot take that software and put it on another piece of, of hardware. It's, uh, we, would we would have to completely reprogram this, recode it from scratch. So we had buyers interested from the Far East who wanted to buy a copy. And since we were always said it's a, in an edition of 10, we had the full right to sell a copy, but we couldn't. So it is on the computers. It's on my computer. It's on the computers, I think, of, of MoMA in San Francisco and of the Art Institute in Chicago. And hopefully, as long as it remains on that machine, it's fine. But it's not, it became its own unicat through technology. And I, of course, talked with the people who did the coding the first time around, and they said it would be an absolute nightmare. I'm meaning like hundreds of hours of coding to make it happen again on the contemporary machines. So it's, yeah, interesting. But it's so technology-based and so, so a a piece of design that's of its time. Uh, and so and uh, so from that point of view, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of technology and design. There's a lot of conceptual work that you do. Do you rework some of the work you think, oh, in actual fact, now I've got the skill or there's the technology to do this. Let's see what happens. To do this with old work, you're meaning? Yeah. Not really. I think that the things that I was thinking about 20 years ago, maybe that comes again, maybe that comes in cycles, but right now 
I'm much more interested in new in in things that that are close to me right now than the stuff that was close to me 20 years ago. So for example, the pure world of happiness. I think that I learned my bits and I'm convinced that my life now is better because of the intense work with that subject, with positive psychology uh, uh, during that time, during those eight years of, of the production of the film. But as a field, I'm much less interested in it. Let's say, like, I've just was, I was at TED, and the, the, the talks that I couldn't stand were the talks that were somehow about self-improvement and that world. It was just like, oh, my God. Like, I just, it's, I think that, well, a, a, a smart designer, I know Michael Beirut, at one time told me when we were judging something that every, everybody hates the stuff that they did 10 years ago the most when you judge other people's work. And I was definitely thinking about that when I heard all these self-improvement talks. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Right. On that note, I'm going to end by asking you what your luxury is. Hmm. Well, right now, because I'm looking at it, is a a very fast espresso machine right here in my studio uh, where I don't have to go downstairs uh, into the kitchen to make one, but uh, have it right here in so that I can uh, get my shot uh, 10 times a day uh, right uh, uh, without having to leave my desk. Brilliant. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. It was us a pleasure. Ali. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, truly. Thank you so much for joining us, Stefan. Thank you to our partners, Intellect Books. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, this is the second part of a two-parter. So if you want to listen to the first part, listen on episode eight in series six. And, of course, join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.